Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jane Richards, and today I'll be speaking to Catherine Sickink about her latest book, The Hidden Face of Rights, Towards a Politics of Responsibilities. Catherine Sickink is a Ryan Family Professor of Human Rights Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. Her work centers on international norms and institutions, transnational advocacy networks, the impact of human rights law and policies, and trans- transitional justice. She has written a number of books, including Evidence for Hope, Making Human Rights Work in the 21st Century, which I must say I've enjoyed very much. She's also written The Justice Cascade, How Human Rights Prosecutions Are Changing World Politics and Mixed Signals, U.S. Human Rights Policy in Latin America, Activists Beyond Borders, Advocacy Networks in International Politics. The later co-authored with Margaret Keck, and both of those were given a number of really impressive awards. And finally, she co-authored with Thomas Riese and Stephen Rupp, The Persistent Power of Human Rights from Commitment to Compliance, which was groundbreaking in the field also. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Catherine about her latest book, published by Yale University Press earlier this year. It is The Hidden Face of Human Rights Toward a Politics of Responsibility. Catherine, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, just... Um, the pleasure is all mine, really. Now, just to begin, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you came to write The Hidden Face of Rights Towards a Politics of Responsibilities? So, as you said in the introduction, I'm a scholar who's worked on norms but and on human rights for many years. And for most of that time, I never talked about responsibilities, only about rights. I knew that for every human right, of course, there was a corresponding responsibility, often a state responsibility. But it wasn't until I was writing Evidence for Hope, and since you've read it, Jane, you know that there's a long discussion. Uh, I enjoyed it very much. (laughs) Well, you know that there's a long historical discussion about the origins of human rights law. And I recount uh, the very important role that Latin American states played in uh, drafting the first intergovernmental declaration of rights, which was the, uh, the American Declaration of Rights and Duties of Man in April, from April 1948. Um, and so I just talked a lot about the American Declaration, focused on it being the first rights declaration. But eventually I said, well, it's the Declaration of Rights and Duties. What was that all about? And what happened to the duties? And why didn't they really reappear in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights? So that's what got me started. Um, hmm. um, it's a really interesting, like, kickoff point. Um, and so then I'm wondering if you can elaborate a little bit more about what responsibilities and means in this book. You talk about what responsibility is and what it has come to mean. For example, mm-hmm. you say... Um, that on the one hand, that rights are incomplete unless they are accompanied by a deep sense of responsibility, which is basically what you've just said about this concept of duties. 
Um, but on the other hand, you also say that words like duty and responsibility and obligation put people off. Mm-hmm. You write that no matter how it's said, responsibility implies should and people don't really like being told what to do. Can you explain what you mean by this and how you interpret responsibility? Right. Um, so uh, so the ter- there's three terms people use, duties, obligations, and responsibilities, right? And of those, uh, I eventually settled on responsibilities because it is, uh, I think, the more open-ended. It's the more modern word. And um, I'm talking about responsibilities that are political and ethical responsibilities. So I'm not talking about legal duties or legal obligations. I don't think we should write a new treaty uh, that's the Treaty of Human Rights and uh, Responsibilities. And so, um, so, I've, uh, so that's why I chose to use the term responsibility and not duties or obligations. But my vision, there's two main ways of thinking about responsibilities. And here I draw very much on the work of political theorist Iris Marion Young. She talks about these two ways as being backward-looking responsibility and forward-looking responsibility. And and the other word she uses for backward-looking responsibility is the liability model of responsibility. And that means who is to blame, basically. Now, this, and since this is a law uh, podcast, I should say this early on, This is the main model of responsibility in law. When you say responsibility to a lawyer, they almost immediately think of basically who's to blame and who can we sue uh, or bring a civil case against or who can we bring a criminal case against. Okay, but and I, as you as you know, from uh, uh, from some of my work, I believe in uh, the liability model for some human rights violations. So I wrote a whole book called The Justice Cascade that's all about human rights prosecutions for mass atrocity. So I'm I'm very much kind of behind the idea that some human rights violations should be prosecuted. There should be a liability model of responsibility. But most human rights, uh, it's not easy to implement them mainly by figuring out who you should punish or who you should blame. In other words, most human rights, we need to think about what we should do in the future together to implement human rights. So that's the forward-looking model. It doesn't ask who's to blame. It asks what should we do? What should we do together? And how can all the actors that are socially connected to a human rights violation take action to try to implement rights more fully? And then can you talk to the point of who are the key actors in this social connection model? So I am, one is I use the term uh, agents of justice. Okay, so who are the agents of justice here? And I I take that from another political theorist, uh, Honor O'Neill. And the notion is that, of course, the first actors who are responsible uh, in a forward-looking way, are states. States are the, the first actors we turn to to implement human rights. Um, and increasingly on some rights, we're also turning to looking at corporations as actors that should have a, a responsibility, certainly forward-looking, perhaps backward-looking responsibility in some cases. But the argument in my book is we shouldn't stop there. Of course, states and corporations are crucial 
agents of justice, right, uh, to implement rights. But, but we can't stop there. And there's many rights that require to, to be fully implemented, require the actions of many other actors. Uh, so actors, for example, like international organizations uh, have responsibilities to act. Actors like non-governmental organizations may have responsibilities, like universities, for example. I talk in the book about responsibilities that universities have, and even, in some cases, individuals. Um, depending on the right, we, professional organizations may have a right to a, a role to play. I mean, you're a, a journalist, and in some cases, you know, professional organizations of journalists have roles. Professional organizations of physicians, for example, may have very important roles around uh, creating codes of conduct for their practitioners to make sure that their practitioners don't uh, violate rights. And so I'm thinking that we need to look at all these state and non-state uh, actors these as agents of justice who may be called upon to exercise responsibility in connection with other actors. And so then talking about this, you picked up on different professions having different responsibilities. Can you talk about some of the norms which we can draw from human rights that relate to the responsibilities that the various actors may have? Um, well, again, this, the states, states have legal responsibilities under human rights law, right? And yeah. um, most of these other actors do not have legal responsibilities, which is why I talk about ethical and uh, political responsibility. So it, it, it depends, partly I'm saying it depends on the kind of rights we're talking about. Um, okay. And as you know, in the book, I talk about uh, uh, questions of climate change. I talk about issues like digital yeah. privacy. I talk about a freedom of speech. And I, I talk about campus sexual assault as kind of illustrations. Um, and, and so uh, I'm talking about in some issue kind of new, new rights, you know, um, and uh, I believe that uh, that for some of these new rights, like, let's talk about like, climate change, for example. Uh, people, ever, many people want to just start with rights. They want to say rivers have rights, trees have rights. Uh, uh, and, and in fact, you know, their rivers do now have rights. The Ganges River, for example, has been found to have have rights. Um, and uh, or even Pachamama, the earth goddess in, in, in Latin America, the constitutions of Ecuador and Brazil say that that the earth has rights. And I'm not opposed to that notion, but I believe that that really doesn't get us very far. If we're really concerned about addressing climate change, only talking about rights and not talking about the responsibilities of all actors socially connected to the problem of climate change uh, just doesn't doesn't get us far enough to address this this problem. I, I did really enjoy the examples that you had in the book. So let's talk more about climate change um, and perhaps responsibilities as consumers rather that we have. So you do give this great example that in terms of the responsibilities of individuals, both in causing climate change, but also in taking action. Um, so, you know, as individuals, we contribute ourselves to climate change, both positively and negatively. And I, I really liked the example that you gave of yourself. So you said, and I was quite impressed with all that you do. You said you moved to a small house within walking distance of your office. You installed solar panels. You turned down the thermostat in winter, which sounds freezing in Boston. Um, especially I'm in Hong Kong, so I can't imagine that. Uh, you stopped eating beef. You started composting and recycling. And you walk or cycle instead of driving. Have you also said that when you calculate it all, 
that your carbon footprint is well above average. And especially as an academic outside COVID times, you'd be doing like a lot of international flying. And that one single international plane trip erases all your efforts at composting and recycling. So I, I did thank you for putting yourself on the line like this. Um, but my question is, when the burden does seem so significant, shouldn't we just expect industries to become more responsible for these emissions? Like, for example, you know, uh, expect uh, airlines to introduce electric planes or something like this. Um, alternatively, could you sort of say, well, you are doing a lot. Does that not absolve you from responsibility from doing other things? Yeah. Um, so two things. So first, with regard mm. to uh, corporations, of, of course, we should be expecting corporations to do more. And I hope this book will not be interpreted as we should take pressure off corporations. I don't think we should take pressure off corporations to uh, do more about climate change. OK. Mm -hmm. At the same time, we need to realize corporations are uh, uh, still very much in the stakeholder model about profit and about supply and demand, okay? So many corporations are not going to make changes unless the demands come either from their stockholders or from their consumers, okay? And so strong messages need to be sent to corporations that uh, there is a demand for them to act in a more uh, socially responsible and green way. So if, if people uh, continue to have demand for fossil fuels at such a high rate, it's going to be really difficult to turn the fossil fuel companies away. And if the demand, let's say, for wind power or solar power continues to be so small, then why should the uh, industry invest in it? Okay. And so we have to realize that, that, that we're part of that demand. Uh, and unless uh, the, they're hearing from uh, consumers about uh, a demand for green uh, action and green products, it's, it's, I think it's unlikely that corporations are going to change. So we, this is a social connection model. Of course, corporations must take action. Uh, and, but everyone socially connected to climate change, including the stockholders of corporations, but also all uh, consumers need to be part of the movement. And okay, taking myself off the hook. I mean, um, the, it's been very interesting during COVID, isn't it? Because what we're seeing, I mean, I had written this book and published before COVID, right? And then all yeah. of a sudden I realized, and I was having such a hard time cutting back on my plane travel because the norms and the practices in our professions, right, are yeah. for us to fly around all the time, almost thoughtlessly, thoughtlessly fly around as if I should fly to, you know, Pittsburgh to stand up and talk to 50 people like, and that's normal and expected. And, and one great thing that I think, ha I mean, you know, of all the terrible things with COVID, but one thing that's happened, I bet a bunch of people are starting to realize, was I insane? I don't have yeah. to get in. I don't have to get in an airplane and fly to Pittsburgh or, or worse yet, fly to, you know, uh, you know, Abu Dhabi, which, or Singapore, which a lot of my colleagues do routinely. Um, uh, I can uh, I can perfectly well present my work via uh, Zoom, for example, um, and that's why this podcast is great. Here we are, you know, talking to one another. Uh, you're in Hong Kong, and I'm here in Cambridge, yeah. and we can talk about ideas. And I don't have to fly to Hong Kong to do it. Yeah, yeah, and then we can share them with like world audience. So it's, you're exactly right. Um, I think this picks up on your point and you hear quote Iris Marion Young in terms of 
different agents um, have different responsibilities depending on um, sort of who you are. So the parameters that agents can use for reasoning about their actions, which are power, privilege, interest, and collective ability. Mm-hmm. Um, you talk about these things matter, making a difference, like the power and privilege that you have. So can you talk a little bit more to this point? Right. So um, the problem with responsibility, if it's political and ethical, is that mm-hmm. it's, uh, it, it's people have a hard time sort of knowing uh, you know, what we should do and who should do what. And so um, this book is really actually directed at privileged people <laughs> because I yeah. say, like with climate change, I say, you know, 10 of the, of the um, lifestyle emissions in the world, 10% of the people, of the 10% richest people in the world are making 50% of the emissions, right? And um, so... So I, I do think that the, that the privileged and powerful people of the world have additional responsibility because they have additional impact uh, in this area. Um, and, and again, people go, oh, 10% is those other people. You know, so what, another thing I did for the book that was really shocking to me was do research on what it takes, what income it takes to be part of the 10% richest people of the world. And there's some differences about it, but something around $100,000 of assets. You know, so that means mm-hmm. like all my colleagues in yeah. <laughs> in the Kennedy School, anyone who owns a house in Cambridge, uh, or for that matter, I can't don't even can't even think about owning something in Hong Kong. You know, in other words, uh, maybe of us, I don't worry. <laughs> maybe yes. we are we are the ten percent richest people. It's not enough yeah. to say those those wealthy people need to do more. Those corporations need to do more. We don't. Uh, the the privileged and powerful and wealthy people have added and additional responsibilities. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I, I imagine many many of our listeners um, will be definitely in that cohort. Um, and so then, yeah, you're right. If this is this is sort of one of the key my key takeaways of the book. We have to ask what together we can do because you know we are fortunate. Um, so. Turning to kind of one of the next examples that you gave, which was, I love the descriptive language you mentioned earlier, um, defense against the dark arts, digital privacy and disinformation. Um, Can you explain a little bit about this? Um, It was just such, I I think it's such a pertinent um, kind of thing right now. It's not something that most of us think about until I read this section of your book. I hadn't thought much about it myself. So yeah, if you can tell me about all about this. So lots of people are are outraged right now about uh, violations of their of digital privacy, right? And so this, mm-hmm. I, I wrote that section shortly after the Cambridge Analytica, uh, you know, scandal came down. Now there's been a lot of things that have happened since, but at that time, I thought, oh my goodness! And for the first time ever, I I thought maybe I should check my privacy settings on my iPhone, you know. I, I literally had never done, I never thought about it. And like, of course I opened them up. I saw my iPhone was set on factory settings and, and it was broadcasting all my data. And of course, because that's how, you know, all of these uh, tech industries are earning their money. They earn their money by selling our data, right? So if they're not charging you for an app, it's because you are the product, not the app. Your data is the product. You know, none of us should be kind of naive about this. And I think, to, to sort of say, oh, those industries should protect my privacy and not realizing what the business model 
at stake is. The, the business model is selling your data. And so don't expect that they're going to stop selling your data without a lot of, of, of pressure. And in the meantime, while we're waiting them for them to take, take responsibility to protect your privacy, uh, in the meantime, you can do some things to try to uh, uh, protect your privacy somewhat. And, and this is, uh, uh, so I was talking about this with a colleague at a tech conference, right? And he was saying, well, he, we, this is really important for young people and include young people as young as primary school kids, because they already have these uh, phones and these other um, devices and uh, their privacy is super important uh, and they're not always aware of it. And so he said that his, he'd gone to his daughter's school to, um, to give a talk about, about digital privacy. And he said they called it digital hygiene. <laughs> and I said, that's an awful name. That, that makes kids think of brushing their teeth. You're not going to get anywhere. You're not going to get anywhere with that name. What's a better name? And he said, well, actually, he, he said, the reason my daughter convinced him to invite me is she she heard that uh, J.R. Rawlings, of the author of the Harry Potter series, was following him on Twitter. Okay, and so that so impressed everybody that they invited yeah, him. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> and, so, and so then we got talking, and I said, you know, the thing is, some of this stuff that's happening, violations of digital privacy or digital and or digital disinformation, which is a whole nother thing. Some of it is truly the dark arts. You know, I think while we were thinking of Harry Potter, we were thinking of the dark arts. Of course, they, they had classes in defense against the dark arts in, in Harry Potter, right? And I said, these kids need to be taught classes as young as in primary school. And you need, don't need to call it digital hygiene. You have to call it something interesting, but actually quite true. And like defense against the dark arts, you know? The things that are going on, whether it be, you know, uh, sometimes, uh, you know, young women are being recruited to human trafficking, right? I mean, some of it's very ugly stuff and people have to learn how to protect themselves um, or the, the electoral uh, disinformation campaigns. Um, but uh, so anyway, that's how I came up with this. Uh, we, we were sort of talking together, making this idea that we should call the classes defense against the digital dark arts. And, and there's one other link to Harry Potter. And that is, you know, the thing about Harry Potter that's so great, if you, is that the, the adults are usually checked out. Even the teachers at, at Hogwarts, even Dumbledore is kind of like not there when they need him, you know, and the kids have to solve the issues on their own. And I think that it's important too for, to realize that unfortunately this area, a lot of the adults are kind of checked out. They're not doing what they should be doing to, uh, to help deal with these privacy issues. And so sometimes young people are going to have to step forward and, and take action for themselves. Mm. Um, I, I mean, I've got, uh, my oldest is in grade five. So yes, this is, I, I can imagine exactly that, exactly appealing to him rather than having to brush his teeth. But, um, <laughs> and, and it is, it is, I do think you're right. It is a case of the kids kind of having to forge ahead without the grown up. So Mm-hmm. Um, coming back to your previous point, we do need to take responsibility for this. So I'm, I'm quite impressed, um, your colleague, the talk at the school. Um, but picking up on a point you just mentioned um, about disinformation, I think this is particularly pertinent leading into the U.S. elections. What are we protecting against here? Um, 
and and how do we do this in terms of our digital privacy? Right. Well, um, one thing, just today in today's Boston Globe, I read a story about Facebook finally stepping up and taking responsibility for it. And so Facebook had, had there was an article about how they have identified some of these Russian uh, organizations that uh, are uh, spreading disinformation in U.S. elections. They've worked with the FBI to, to identify these and they're they're um, they're getting rid of their Facebook accounts, you know. Um, and so that's huge. That's huge that Facebook is finally saying it's not just, you know, freedom of information, the more information, the better, but saying, no, there's, there is, uh, you know, pernicious and vicious action going on that has huge consequences. Um, and uh, so, but in terms of disinformation, of course, some of it's starting with Russian uh, organizations or even with bots, but eventually it's all being forwarded by humans, right? Somebody. Yeah. Somebody is retweeting. Somebody is is forwarding, and so going viral. The bots can't make it go viral. They can they can they have ways of accelerating things, but they can't make it go viral. Humans are making it go viral, and so again, I you know I, that's why I think that that professors and teachers do have a role here because we teach in you know in our classes we're constantly teaching our students. What's the difference between we're trying to teach between good sources, trustworthy sources and not trustworthy sources, you know, and I teach my students, you know, what is what are the things they can't use in their footnotes? Right. And yeah. yet we don't we don't take the next step and say, by the way, all these rules we're talking about class about what's a good source and what's not a good source and why you shouldn't use sources that you don't trust them. All all that stands for your Twitter account. All that stands for Facebook. All that stands for you know, whatever social media you happen to be on. If you don't know who sent it, don't forward it. You know, if, if you don't trust the, the, uh, the source, you know, don't, don't accelerate it. And, so, and I think that, again, that is really not out there. And it's not just young people, but it's a lot. I have to say it's also a lot of people our age and, or our parents' age, you know. We, uh, you know, I know someone who keeps getting stuff from his dad, which is just um, is really dis complete disinformation. He finally wrote back. He goes, Dad, you know, you can't send me this until you check the facts. Do not send me anything that you don't know who it came from. And his father took it. Listen to him. You know, people, if we have to, we have to instead of just going, oh, there they go again, delete. You know, you have to you, people, you know, and care about. You have to write back and say, do you know what you're doing? You are. You're forwarding disinformation and could have really pernicious effects. You know, don't do that. Hmm. And I, I think that really well illustrates your point that we do all have these responsibilities. And so taking a simple action like speaking to your dad and saying, don't spread this information. I mean, there's sort of, there's a cascade effect, I think, um, you know, because you don't know how the disinformation is going to be used um, yeah. or the consequences. Mm -hmm. um, so now I do, I think it's a good time to talk about voting the section on voting in the book. And I must say, I was very inspired about what you wrote about um, what happened at Harvard, but I was also very struck because, as you know, I'm from Australia where voting is compulsory. Um, when I first left, I couldn't believe it wasn't anywhere else in the world. But now I live in Hong Kong where people have been protesting desperately for years for the right to vote, you know, most notably in 2014, Occupy Central, and, of course, last year. Um, one of the five demands was for in the anti-extradition bill protests. So, yeah. but then in the US, 
uh, sorry, just and generally, you point to the fact that voting is one of the ways to bolster and maintain democracy. But you write about a lack of belief in voting in the US. So, I mean, this is what I was very struck by. You draw a comparison between the US with Latin America when you write about how Latin Americans stop believing in democracy and express concerns for, you know, similar possibility happening there. Mm-hmm. Firstly, I want to understand like what's going on in the US um, and what are the norms that encourage or discourage people to vote? Um, and how should we encourage voting, especially at such a crucial time? Right. Well, um, there's a, the chapter, the first chapter I read about voting was based on some focus groups I did with Harvard students. Um, this was, you know, er, a very early 2018. And I was really surprised that there were, these are Harvard students and they were, they were, they expressed, uh, yes, maybe they're responsible to vote, but voting, you know, was complicated. And, uh, you know, where do you find stamps anyway? And so some of it was just people not thinking it was very important. But sometimes people said, oh, there's lots of ways to participate politically and voting's not privileged in any way. And if I want to, you know, protest, that's enough. I don't have to vote too. Um, and so there were all sorts of ways that students were uh, were not valuing uh, and not endorsing the importance of voting. Um, and then I also sort of saw a change here at the university. And it was by the result of student leadership. So the students stepped forward and finally said, you know, voting is really important. It's not, it's not the only thing we do. It's just one thing we all have to do in order to bring about change. And I, as soon as students started really talking to one another, making it important and talking to one another, they started changing the norms. And, you know, you know, one thing about young people, they are very conscious of peer pressure. And when the peer pressure started to change and voting started to be something uh, Im- uh, important and serious and, and cool, uh, you just saw kind of a, a sweep uh, of changing norms. And we had a very big increase in, in, in voter turnout. And that's all over the country between 2014 and 2018. Uh, student uh, voting doubled on average in the country. Okay. Now that's because it started from such a low level. Students don't vote very much and they really don't vote in midterms. They vote in presidential. So there was this big jump, but we're still only, I think at an average of, you know, 49% of of students voting. So here you have some of the most educated, you know, young people in the country who are, who are very um, capable of voting and yet still only half of them are, are voting. Um, I think it's possible from what I'm seeing around the country that we're going to see another big jump uh, this fall. But I, you know, you hate to get your hopes up um, (laughs) and then be disappointed. But we see students mobilizing um, and continuing the campaigns that they had in 2018 for the midterms. Uh, And I believe that uh, that students will make a difference in some states in the in the November elections. So can you talk in a bit more detail about the um, the project that happened at Harvard? It was really interesting, the, um, the competition with Yale and getting <laughs> students. It was, it was fascinating. Right. So it's called the Harvard Boats Challenge. Um, and the, the ch- there was all sorts of challenges on campus. For, for one thing, we challenged ourselves. So we at the Kennedy School, the Harvard Kennedy School, where I teach, we challenged ourselves to try to register 90% of the students. 
and I say ourselves, I mean a committee made up of students and staff and faculty, right? Um, and we, when we said that, we thought there was really kind of a dream because it's a very high number for, and we actually reached 90% of, of students registered to vote. Um, wow. But then there were other, other parts of, cam- of the campus were organizing. So there's a little, there was a little bit of competition to see uh, whether the Kennedy School could do better than the law school. And we did. <laughs> uh, but then the, the, the colleges, the undergraduates got this idea that they'd have a, a challenge with other universities, you know, so the other colleges. So, you know, these colleges, um, especially these elite colleges, you know, that there's all this, this competition is on the playing field. It's all about football competition or crew competition or basketball. And so all of a sudden they said, hey, we can compete to see who gets more voters, you know, who has more voters. And uh, they uh, got got into that as well. And so that's all for the good. You know, why shouldn't why shouldn't you compete if that if that leads to more enthusiasm and more participation? Right. Hmm. Um, and then just picking up on your point that you made in the book, um, but also just now, you said that some of the smartest and most motivated students in our country feel that voting is too hard and too confusing. So can you talk a little bit more about the barriers, please, to voting? Oh. So voting in the United States is so ridiculously complicated. It's because we have this very ancient you know, system which left all these voting decisions to states and even in some cases, municipalities, right? So every state has an entirely different set of rules for voting. And, and that means for absentee voting. So if, you know, students go to college elsewhere, then, and they're, they're, they, they're from Tennessee. Well, Tennessee has completely different rules than any other state. So a student comes thinking he can write and get his absentee ballot after he gets to college. And he finds out that no, in Tennessee, you have to request your absentee ballot in person <laughs> or else you can't get one. Right. Um, and uh, so that some, of, so some of it's just, just historical legacy of that, you know, the old United States where states always had lots of power, but today though that it's being used to suppress votes. So there's this combination of active voter suppression on top of an old bad system. Okay. And the active voter suppression is, you know, you all is a problem with uh, identification. You know, Um, some states, Minnesota, where I'm from, you know, you you don't have to show a photo, uh, photo ID. There's there's various other forms of identification you can use for students. For example, their driver's license tends to be from their home state. But if they can use their student ID to vote then that's where they live, right? But if you insist on having a driver's license for them, they've got to go and get a new driver's license. And that involves taking driver's tests and everything else uh, in their new place. And so um, there's right now we're seeing this crazy suppression around the fact that they're, they're withdrawing funding from the, the post office, for example. So it's, they're going to be too slow to deliver ballots. We okay. have... Uh, voter suppression around the fact that there's going to be a shortage of polling booths, um, and because uh, that again is controlled at the at the state or municipal level, how many booths you, how many vo- polling places you put in different neighborhoods, and we know that there are fewer polling places are being put in neighborhoods of uh, black and brown communities, 
uh, and that Republican governors are doing this and, and, and mayors are doing this on purpose to try to limit uh, the voting of those communities. Um, so there's, there's terrible problems with voting suppression. But if students are very well placed, if they know ahead to start figuring those things out and to to try to um, uh, to try to uh, uh, break down that suppression by figuring out the secrets of, of uh, advocacy voting and the arcane rules for absentee voting and get your act together. So if you've got a nowadays Harvard, when they send out the list to well, nowadays, not, not all colleges, students are not on campus in all colleges, but. Uh, you know, when they send a list of what to bring to college and what to do before you come, they're starting to say, and by the way, why don't you pick up your absentee? Why don't you file for your absentee ballot before you go, just in case you live in Tennessee and otherwise, and otherwise you'll be disenfranchised. So it's a, it's a big, you have no idea. People who don't live in the United States or who have compulsory voting, like in Australia, yeah. have no, no idea how ridiculous our voting system is. I, honestly, hearing you describe it, it just blows my mind because, uh, like, as I say, in Australia, it is compulsory and you get fined if you don't do it, but it is set up so that you can vote and it is not, there are just not barriers like this. You turn up at the polling booth on Saturday and you place your vote, you know. Um, it's, right. it's hard to believe. But um, so then do you see it? Oh, sorry, go on. I was going to say, so this goes to kind of the, you know, responsibility issues. Of course, the state has responsibility for making the right to vote real, you know? But yeah, guess what? These states aren't doing it accidentally. They're doing it on purpose. They're suppressing votes on purpose, <laughs> right? And so if you're going to fight that, you can't just demand that the state uh, do give you your right to vote. You're going to have to uh, actively take responsibility for, for taking back your right to vote from efforts to, uh, to, to suppress it. It does certainly seem to oppose, you know, fundamental principles of democracy, which encourage democratic participation. It's, it's the opposite of that. So do you, do you think there is in this context, is there a responsibility to vote? Um, so yes, I believe that it's one of those issues It's one of those, I talk about decentralized, um, decentralized compliance decisions, you know, even in places like even, you know, Minnesota, where I come from, had the highest voter turnout in the country and the state was doing everything possible to help people to vote. And they only get up to 70 percent, you know, so there's still 30 percent of the people who in the best case scenario, you know, are just can't be bothered. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, I do believe that to implement your right to vote, you have to take responsibility to vote. Among and the many things you do, you have to do that also. And so do you see it's possible then to change the norms around voting? I mean, the experience at Harvard would seem to suggest it is, um, yeah. but on a large scale. So I'm a, I'm a scholar of norm change, right? Mm -hmm. And as you, norm change often happens in kind of waves or cascades. Um, you know, we see that with things like smoking, for example, or seatbelts or you know, other things. It used to be, I don't know how old you are, you're not younger than me, but I remember a time when, you know, everyone smoked and no one wore seatbelts, you know. Uh, and so I see that these changes can happen and they happen in waves. 
And voting, I think, is is similar. And also, we know that when people vote when they're young, they are um, more likely to vote, become voters, have a voter identity, and vote their whole lives. And so, I was just reading about the, the 1952 election. For some reason, 1952, young people voted at higher rates than older people did. But the people, the older people of today in the United States, people who voted in, in elections, young people in 1952, right? So we need that. We need that new wave to to turn people in, to have identities as voters, and then they will continue voting. And I think yes, it's happening. I think it's happening, and I think it's possible. And the only question is, will it be enough? Mm. Certainly, I hope so. Um, so sticking still to issues on campus. One of the key sections of your book is about free speech and protest. Um, and also, uh, sorry, sexual assault on campus. And you, sorry, let's turn to free speech first. So that you write in your book, it's um, not a manifesto for responsibilities instead of rights, but that it's about the necessity of creating and articulating firmer notions and practices of networked responsibilities among diverse actors as necessary complements to human rights in order to realize those rights more fully. Now, can you explain what you mean by this rights and responsibilities framework, especially in the context of college campuses um, and especially in relation to the examples you give about free speech? Mm -hmm. Okay. So, you know, I believe in the right to free speech. I believe in the right to protest as well. Um, And I, but I, I also believe that uh, you know, we have to balance off our right to free speech and our right to protest with other people's right to free speech, right? And so we have to think about ways we can uh, kind of balance off rights and responsibilities there. Um, and so I give an example of how, you know, we at the Kennedy School believe that when we have speakers, at, you know, legitimate academic speakers who've been invited by students or have been invited by faculty, um, they should be given uh, the the they should be allowed to speak and their voice should not be drowned out. And that doesn't mean you can't protest. You can protest. You just need to protest on the street outside and not in the uh, in the building inside where it's happening. And and we believe that speakers are never allowed to speak without getting hard questions. You've got if you've got problems with the speaker. You can get first in line at the microphone in the Kennedy School Forum, and you can ask whatever question you want to ask, and they can be hard questions. But we, we don't think that, that the protest should drown out speakers at an academic institution. Okay? Now, what you do in the streets, if you, want to, if you want to drown out anyone as you're marching through the streets shouting, that's a different arena. Okay? It's not, a, it's not an arena where, that we're, we're supposed to listen and, and exchange ideas. And so then um, it seems is what you're saying is that it's contextual in terms of, you know, there's sort of a limit. There's not in some spaces, there's no limit to free speech and in others there are. Yes, I do think it's contextual. And so even, you know, I was at one point I talked about what are the rules uh, in the classroom, right? And so in, in, in the classroom, you know, the, the, the U.S. Supreme Court is very protective of free speech. Uh, and basically, let's you know, let's you say almost anything you want. But those, the Supreme Court rules are not the kind of rules that I would use in my classroom, because that would that would totally undermine the atmosphere I need for learning to take place. 
Okay, so we we expect people to respectfully disagree in the classroom and not exercise their right to say anything they damn please, you know, because we need a classroom where learning can happen. And that will only be the case if there's uh, if there is a respectful uh, behavior. So, yes. Yeah, so the street is very different than the classroom and the classroom is actually different than the forum, you know, um, yeah. and, and, and we need to have we need to elaborate the norms that are appropriate in those different places. So then is there a corresponding right to be free of hate, hate speech? And any corresponding obligations, do you think? Well, you know, this is the place where uh, Europe and and the U.S. have have disagreements over uh, hate speech and what constitutes hate speech. Um, And uh, the European tradition is is more to say, yes, you do have a, a freedom. You do have a right to be free of hate speech. And the U.S. tradition is to say uh, that um, that you have a right to be you know, protected from speech that we can directly link to sort of uh, to sort of physical harm, right? But mm-hmm. not not protected from all hate speech, and and so I think that there's a legitimate range of disagreement there about you know uh, different law. I uh, I think that the European laws, the German law, for example, are you know I would I would fully support those. Uh, I don't think I'm going to get them in the United States because we have a different tradition. Mm-hmm. And so does any university have any obligations um, in terms of avoiding formal and informal censorship, do you think? Um, well, yes, in the sense of, but I just explained, you know, yeah. like in, in my classroom, I expect re- respectful speech. So hate speech in my classroom would utterly destroy the yeah. atmosphere I need for learning. And so I, I would not generally tolerate anything that looked like hate speech in my, in my classroom. Okay. Now, yeah. Now, but then there's kind of disagreements over where, you know, where uh, uh, certain kinds of, of, of hate speech ends and legitimate expression of opinion begins, you know. Um, and so I, I do think it's important that people uh, be listened to and not silenced. Um, mm-hmm. But when they're engaging in when they're expressing opinions as opposed to something that you and I might both call hateful speech. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so now turning to the issue of sexual assault on campus, um, you quote from an article from Glamour magazine by Vanessa Grigodorius, which says, while rape is always only the perpetrator's fault, and I mean always, being smart about your risk shouldn't be controversial. Now, you emphasize that any effort to limit sexual assault must first hold perpetrators responsible and, where appropriate, criminally accountable. So I'm interested to know then, how is the phenomenon of sexual assault on campus engaged by the forward-looking responsibility and backward-looking responsibility model? Right. So one of the um, things you'll see in in that chapter is uh, I talk about um, a, a training program for uh, uh, freshman women where they did a very effective training program and then they did a very effective uh, uh, study that had a control group to see if it was effective or not. And they found that this training program reduced the amount of rape and attempted rape and basically assault short of rape or attempted rape. So it was an effective training program. And it was for freshmen, women, and it was called self-defense training. Okay. Now, 
this actually is the most controversial part of the book. And that's really interesting to me because that's people haven't picked up on this, which I think is the most controversial part of the book. Um, and uh, so many, many people say that even an effective program for freshmen, first we have to know freshmen, the, most of the rape happens in freshman year. And most of it happens in the first month of the freshman year. Okay. So that means uh, these, these young women who come to campus are, are very vulnerable. And this was a training program and it's called self-defense, but it's, it's not mainly telling people how to use Kung Fu or something. Yeah. It okay. actually, fo- it actually focuses very much on making people aware of their situation. So they, about how to be aware that you, you might be in a dangerous situation, right? And then what kinds of verbal, first verbal uh, uh, language you can use, and then very simple kind of physical uh, uh, gestures that can be used to, or, or uh, requests for help that you can use in order to help get yourself out of a dangerous situation, okay? And so most of it is really about analyzing, for, for women to analyze the uh, when they're potentially in a dangerous situation. Okay. And this is connected to bystander training, of course, as well, where, uh, you know, the most, the most effective thing you can do is if you realize you're in a bad situation is to turn to, 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 is to have attended with someone else and turn to that person and ask for help to get out. Um, but this is, it's very controversial among many uh, uh, people who work on campus sexual assault because they say that this risks blaming the victim. They say if these young women are the yeah. victims, they should never be expected to have responsibility. And they should, anything that looks like somehow that they're at fault is completely unacceptable. Okay. Um, and my belief is that um, if we have a program that we know because it's been tested through, you know, a, a study with a control group we know is effective in reducing rape and, and attempted rape and harassment short of attempted rape. Why would we not use that? Why should that be controversial? Right. And so yeah. I do, I advocate for, and that doesn't mean we stop doing other things. Bystander training is, is also, also uh, is a good thing to be doing. And also we should, and where necessary, uh, uh, rapists, of course, should be held criminally accountable. Yeah. Um, but to sort of say only we only hold uh, 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 you know rapists criminally accountable, and we don't do other forms of training because it would be wrong to ask these uh, young women to uh, take this program because it would suggest that they're to blame. Uh, I think that's a mistake. I think that's exactly an example of where we take the rights language too far and to, and make it too divorced from responsibility. Yeah, I understand what you mean. So it is this concept of forward-looking responsibility and sort of asking what can we all do together. Um, And so then I guess sticking a little bit with the controversy, you do talk a bit about the link between alcohol and rape on campuses. Can you talk more about how responsibility um, is engaged in this context? So. so again, there's there's there some of some of the issues, some of the studies of rape on campus are quite um, are that we still don't have the kind of information we need, and in particular, I talk about two. Uh, there's two different studies that have quite different information about yeah, whether okay. most 
whether most rape is uh, is done by serial rapists. There was one study that suggested that most, you know, the great bulk of rape on campus is committed by a very small handful of men. And then a, a later study uh, said that actually not the case, that it's, it's a much broader group. Um, and I, by the way, I'm using women and men here, but we, because that's what the studies use, but there's, you know, women, of course, there's sexual abuse of men and there's very large sexual abuse of uh, LGBT and especially trans uh, people. So I, I want to be clear that sexual assault can happen to any gender, uh, but most of the studies that have been done that I'm citing involve women and men. So I'm using those terms. Um, but so, uh, so anyway, the, the issue here is that what we do know some things and we know that, that rape on campus is very, very often accompanied by alcohol consumption. Right. Yeah. Um, and again, so then we're back in the controversy. Are you saying that because someone drinks that they somehow are to blame for their own? And so, no, we're not saying that. Yeah, we're not saying. Okay, what am I saying? I'm saying it shouldn't be controversial for women to be smart about their own safety. Okay, so you want to say, yeah, "Yeah, if we know, if we know certain things, like we know certain fraternities are notorious, are notorious for being places where sexual assault happens. You know, so you would, so yeah, we want women to be smart. We want them not to go to those fraternities. If they go, they should only go accompanied by friends. If they go accompanied by friends, apparently this is already happening. I didn't realize that, but there's a new. It's like it's like the designated driver. There's a new word. Do you know this word? <laughs> I forget yeah. it right now. I don't there's, know. A, there's a designated person oh, who wow. goes to these parties who, when you go to a frat house, is a designated person who can cannot drink and whose job it is to see trouble before it happens and to, you know, call the taxi or call the Uber or whatever and get people out yeah. of there. Um, and so it seems to me that that I, I think if we're if we're saying to women that they shouldn't be smart and they shouldn't be they shouldn't know, they shouldn't get gather information and know how to protect their safety. I think that's the wrong message to send to women. Yeah, it's it seems to be um, trying to avoid putting yourself in the way of known risks. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or, you know, so, so like I say, you know, it doesn't mean you can't go to fraternity, but you know, mm. would, would you ever, ever, ever go with someone to their room? No. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. Uh, when, because we know the same thing. We know that, that some of these, um, sexual assault and gang rape there, you know, these are, there are predators. They, they are on the lookout for a particular con, you know, for, for women they perceive as vulnerable. And what they're going to try to do is get those women out of the public area into a room where they can be abused. And so, yeah. you know, being proactive to prevent that, I think is a, is a smart thing to do and should not be controversial. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, and now just drawing these all, to, all these points together um, and the ethics of responsibility, you say that in the last section, you say we need to take up Viva's ethic of responsibility in the sense of being concerned not only about having the right intentions, but also thinking about the consequences of our actions. When facing a human rights issue, ask yourself not only who are the bearers of justice, but also who are the agents of justice? Who are the multiple actors able to promote the fulfillment of rights? Don't just ask who is to blame. This is an important issue, but not always the most relevant one for implementing human rights. Ask instead, what together can we do? Now, I was very inspired by this this idea, and I do plan to use it both in my teaching and also with my children. Can you just 
bring these points together and explain this a little more, please. Right. So that's the part that I call the rights and responsibility framework, right, which is the book. And that's very, very important for me that this book be understood as being about rights first and responsibilities. Okay. And, yeah. and especially about responsibilities as necessary to implement, to fully implement rights. So it's not a book about responsibilities instead of rights. It's a book about how responsibilities are, are one necessary part of implementing rights. And so this framework I say is that you start asking, you know, you start asking these questions, you know, who are the, who are the bearers of, of rights, right? Who are the bearers of rights? Who are the agents of justice and, 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 uh, what kind, you know, how can we, in it, we use a social connection model so that everyone socially connected to these rights violations can try to start acting together to try to diminish uh, violations of human rights. And sometimes those agents of justice, we are, we individuals yeah. are among those agents of justice. And we need to, to uh, ask ourselves what we can do together. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely agree. Um, so I've taken up a lot of your time, Catherine. So, but just before you go, can you tell me a bit about what you're working on now? Um, well, right now, <laughs> uh, right now, I've, I've actually started to use this framework to to give to talk about the COVID uh, situation, and it's actually very useful to talk about COVID. And so, it's quite interesting that um, you, uh, the whole debate over the United States about masks, for example. Yeah, uh, literally, there was a, a a religious figure in the newspaper today saying that wearing a mask uh, limited our freedom and was like a communist act. Be asked, asking people to wear masks. Okay, so once again, we're seeing how fr- the demands for for freedom get totally uh, 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 get taken into such an extreme way that they're not taking into account people's responsibilities to protect the rights of others. Right. And we know that unless everyone exercises their simple every individuals, unless individuals exercise simple responsibilities like washing their hands and like wearing masks, that we, we will not be able to protect everyone's health. And so the COVID example is a really good example of why yeah. we need a rights and responsibility framework. But I'm also taking it to talk about like the issue of vaccines. Right. Like we hope we have a vac- we hope we have many vaccines. Yep. That will come out, but already we have uh, a move by some countries like the United States and the UK, and by some corporations to to try to not to only think about their own well-being and not to think about responsibility for all the people around the world. And I'm actually very worried what's going to happen with some of these vaccines come out with very with patents and very high prices and uh, and how that will be you know, uh, how we could, how we could head that off by having a better movement to take responsibility for making sure that profit doesn't take uh, precedence over people's health. Mm -hmm. That sounds very much like some very pertinent and interesting research. And I do hope that um, it has a strong influence, especially in the context of profit making by the big corporations. Um, So I'll, I'll definitely, I will look out for it too. Once again, I'm Jane Richards, and I've been speaking with Catherine Sicking about her book, The Hidden Face of Rights, Towards a Politics of Responsibilities. It was published by Yale University Press earlier this year. I strongly recommend that you check it out.
You've been listening to the New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. Catherine, thank you for your time. Thank you, Jane. It's been a pleasure.